Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. At first glance, you might think that there's not much we don't already know about Roger Federer, the wholesome, balletic, enduring tennis champion. But New York Times sports writer Christopher Clary's new biography called The Master, The Brilliant Career of Roger Federer, is the result of 20 years watching the player evolve from a promising but undisciplined young Swiss teenager to a global role model and reveals the behind-the-scenes strategy and team of coaches that go into the making and maintaining of an exemplary elite career. Clary highlights the importance of Federer's wife, a former player who understands the world of tennis as an insider and is his most trusted confidant. But we also get real insight into the psychology of an athlete blessed with natural facility who retains a competitive drive despite having won everything and more. I want to ask you about the logistics of writing this book because you've had extraordinary access. So can you just tell me a little bit about where you talked to Federer over what period of time and how you earned his trust? Because I think trust is a key word with him. You know, in terms of the book, I mean, I didn't think about writing a book until much later in this process, obviously, that I'll describe. But, you know, Roger was somebody who I first met, you know, formally was in 2001 in Switzerland, um, in Basel, his home city, where he was playing Davis Cup against the United States. And I was there really to cover the United States team because Patrick McEnroe, John McEnroe's brother, was the new captain. So that was kind of the story for us going in. I had no idea the story would end up being Roger Federer. And he was a very young player then, and he just destroyed the Americans, basically, over over a three-day competition. And I just thought he was a future number one, as I read about in the book. I rarely have that kind of premonition, but I just felt watching him, I could just transpose his game to grass and transpose his game to the biggest stages. And you could just see he had something special and and a new gear that tennis did not yet possess. But I first saw him play in person in 1999, a couple years earlier, at the French Open, Roland Garros, where he played Patrick Rafter, Australian's great player. Australia's great player. He was, I think, number one at the time or close to it. And he uh, he played Roger on the red clay and in Paris, and, and Pat Rafter was pretty good, pretty handy clay court player because he grew up in Queensland, obviously, with the ant bed courts. So he knew how to get around the, the, the clay pretty well. And he uh, lost a set to Roger, but then basically just dismantled him. You could see Roger had this wonderful flashy game and charismatic game, and I was very interested after that in following him and keeping track of his progress. But over time, um, you know, it became something where he just was such a appealing character to so many. I was very intrigued and interested about trying to get to spend some time with him. And I think kind of a combination of things happened. One was I happened to be based in Europe at the time. I was based in, in Spain and in France for many years over there. And as a European tennis player, it was easy to get access to him over there through my papers, the New York Times and the International Herald Tribune. And he was also interested in expanding into the, the North American market. That was very important to him. As a Swiss player, without a naturally large home base economically speaking, for his business affairs. He was interested in trying to reach the U.S. audience in particular. And so I think he saw the New York Times as a uh, as a good vector for that. So I, I wasn't my, my nice smile and my charm that got me the interviews. It, it was certainly, the, you know, the New York Times that got the, uh, was the entry, entry pass to that. But we just really, I, I honestly feel we, the way he is, he's just very easy company. Somebody who uh, is very natural. And he was even then when he was young with, with the press and with, with, uh, in a one-on-one setting. And, um, it just felt more like a conversation from the very beginning. And obviously he became more polished as time went on. And, and I think, you know, realized his reach more and more as, as he matured. 
but he's always been that sort of, um, you know, fellow where you're, you you really have a have a conversation and he'll expand on things and he'll he'll take you into a story and he'll it's not just a a, a stiff professional exercise with him. And I I think we really hit it off, you know, journalistically professionally. And we had a nice I, I, my first big interview with him was in Paris in 2005. It's a funny one. It was in the Hotel de Crillon, which is this magnificent hotel on the Place de la Concorde with a view of um, all sorts of wonderful things in Paris. He's on the top floor in a suite. And we were talking about his, um, the fact that he was, didn't have an agent. He decided to kind of go it on his own at that time, which was unusual for a player at that level. He was already number one. And the funny thing about the interview was Mirka, his future wife, is then his girlfriend and kind of his business partner in a lot of ways, who ran all his media operations then, which was funny to think about now. They were going to shoot, a, I think, a Perry Match photo shoot that later that day or the next day. And so Mirka kept parading into the into the room where we were talking in different clothing. She'd come in with some you know peasant-inspired dress and then something more formal. There are several of these things. that, And Roger would be talking to me, and then he'd sort of look up, and she'd go, what do you think? And he'd sort of break away and then answer her question, yay or nay, and then he'd come back to me and say, where were we exactly again? Let's get back to that. So the whole thing, usually he's very focused, but that was more of an interrupted one. And over the years, I've done, honestly, I think well over 20 exclusive interviews with Roger in many different settings. I've interviewed him in a car after midnight coming back, which I described in the introduction to the book um, from in Buenos Aires when he was there for an exhibition with Juan Martín del Potro, and just a very much a you know, rock star kind of exit with all these people crowded around the car and up against the glass and chasing him in the car and, and him talking about fame there. And then we've, we've done interviews uh, when his first twins were born, you know, right near his house in Switzerland. I travel over for that. We've done an interview in a private plane when I followed him for a story on his businesses and interviewed him in cars and buses. And one of my favorite ones was in a um, limousine with or sorry, a van with Rafa Nadal and Roger at the first Lever Cup in Prague, going across the cobblestones, and in the back seat was the captain of their team, was Bjorn Borg. <laughs> and Borg, you know, at one point was the biggest thing, one of the biggest things in sport. He couldn't have Bjorn Borg would not have been silent in the back of a van for an interview ever. He would have been the focus. But these guys had gotten so big that it was all about Rafa and Roger. And Bjorn sat in the back, listened to it all as we did this interview, and. They were great. And then so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book. I had had all this amazing access to Roger and his people over time. And I felt I would really regret it if I didn't write it. So given that you've had this fantastic, very privileged access, and obviously Roger has trusted you greatly, were there any rules about this book? Were there any no-go areas, any sensitivities? Um, did he read a draft and approve of it? Well, the thing is, I'm a New York Times journalist and... Um, we're not allowed to cooperate. Uh, we're not by our ethical ethics policy at the times. We are not allowed to do, to do that. It happened in the past. Some of my sports colleagues in the early years, some of the former columnists did do books with people and the paper just decided it was a slippery slope and did not want anybody to have any direct connection like that, especially any kind of business operation with our business connection to a, a player or an athlete or a source we would, we would cover. And I think it's a good policy. So, I couldn't write this book with Roger. That was clear from the startup. I had decided to work on an autobiography with him or something like that. If that had been in play, I would have had to leave the paper to do that. So I, in my job as a sports writer and a tennis columnist and correspondent, I just had to be uh, had to have separation. So Roger did not cooperate with the writing of the book. I was hoping he would fact check some things for me. Um, and I, people within, within his team who've worked with him over the years did do that with me and, and also talked to me for the book. But Roger did not talk expressly for the book 
And that was important from the paper's perspective. And I think the right way to do it. Um, he was aware of it. I communicated it to him. He knew it was happening and we did exchange some things. And uh, he chose because there's been a fair number of books written about Roger over the years, mostly by Swiss journalists. A couple of English journalists have written some quality biographies of him, but um, he's, I think, tried to keep a policy where he didn't want to give anybody special treatment on that. And I think he'd probably promised some people early in his career he wasn't going to cooperate with the book. So he stuck to that. But I honestly, when I went into that, I knew that was probably going to be the case. And I felt that I needed to keep the distance. And also, I felt like um, I had plenty of material, almost too much material, to be honest, Caroline. Was there anything that was sensitive? Well, I think the problem with his wife, Mirka, who I just talked about earlier with her, it was such a big part of his career on the business side, as well as his personal life, obviously. Mirka hasn't really done a formal interview in well over a decade. Not that I'm aware of anyway. Um, she didn't give many in the early years either when she was working with Roger, but I had some contact with her and other journalists had more contact than that. And so she's kind of kept it. Um, they decided, I'd say in that 2005, 2006 era, she needed to keep her distance from, from the press and so that made it tricky in some ways because I would love to have had Mirka confirm or or clarify some things that came up about her during the book's reporting. And obviously, you don't want to make any leaps or suppositions with somebody who's so important to Roger in his life. But she's such a key element. She had to be a big part of the book. Absolutely. She's central to, to everything. I mean, everything goes through her. She's part of every conversation. It's fascinating to see the extent of that. And also, I mean, I'm interested in the fact that it seems that Tennis players generally, I mean, this is a very sweeping statement, but you get the tennis players that marry models, and then you get the tennis players that marry other tennis players. That seems to be the two options, broadly speaking. And obviously, there is something very comforting and very reassuring about having someone who understands the pressures of the circuit as your partner. It strikes me, Christopher, that it's a very clean story. You know, this is not someone who's had to battle demons or addictions. I wondered whether that made it more difficult to write in terms of the sort of drama of a traditional narrative arc. I mean, you don't, for example, have to deal with a pushy parent behind Roger. You don't have to deal with someone who has a particularly explosive temperament that they need to control. I mean, yes, when he was a young man, he was different and he did throw a few rackets and he misbehaved a little bit. But, you know, there are not a lot of dark twists and turns to this story. So was that hard for you? You know, it's interesting because I know your your podcast is a lot about process and, and, and sort of the biographer's process. And I, I think there has been some resistance over the years in North America in particular in the book market over here to the idea of a big Federer biography. I think because there was maybe that lack of cinematic, if you will, uh, yeah, kind of that cinematic series of uh, comebacks and big adversity. But I've always sort of begged to differ with that. I feel like in the sense, Roger, yes, there hasn't been a scandal. There hasn't been a moment where his career was hanging in the balance, not late, at least not until now late in his career. But there have been a lot of twists and turns and, and really pivotal moments, I think. And I think there's been some pretty dramatic things that have happened to him, in particular his connection to Peter Carter, who was the Australian who was so important to Roger in his early career. He was uh, from Adelaide area, trained with the great Australian coach Peter Smith, who later coached Leighton Hewitt. And Peter Carter was a very talented player, but he didn't really have natural power or, or maybe some of the qualities that made Roger such a special champion. But he had he had some of them, and he was able to 
by sheer coincidence, really ended up in Basel, where Roger was from, and coaching at his um, at his club. And he really formed Roger's game, and I think created a connection to the greater professional world that Roger might not have had any other way. Uh, Switzerland was not a place that produced a lot of great men's players, so he was Peter was his window to another world there with all the great Aussie players of the past. And Peter was one of the most important people in Roger's life, and he was killed, as your listeners may remember or may know, in 2002 on his honeymoon in South yeah. Africa in a vehicle accident there, uh, heading on safari near Kruger National Park. And that was a devastating moment for Roger. It came when he was 21 years old. Losing somebody that important to you at that age is always very, very tough to manage. Some of that kind of your first big loss like that. And I think he felt a little bit guilty because I think it was South Africa was his mother's country. They had recommended Peter go. Of course, it wasn't their fault. But I think there was a feeling that, oh, you know, we were somehow somehow got involved in this process of him being there and what a tragic way for him to die. And I know Roger wasn't working with him at the time formally, but I people who close to him have told me that they're convinced he would have wanted to do that again at some point. So I think, mm. I think that was a loss that really sobered Roger made him take stock of himself. And I think he's used that as, as fuel and as a mission for the rest of his career, quite honestly. And he still will choke up talking about Peter and, and I don't think of Peter Carter you know, it's hard to say. I'd hate to say that, but I, there is a possibility that Peter Carter hadn't died. Roger would not have been the great champion that he became. And it's not, it's not unthinkable that Roger would have not been able to focus and, and find that source of consistent inspiration. I don't know. I'm not sure that's it's fair to speculate about that to that degree, but I, it definitely played a role in Roger's maturity process and his ability to stick to it. And there have been many moments in his career where he's had to make big decisions, including separating from Peter Carter as a coach earlier in that period including deciding to uh, make other switches in his career. And I think also somebody who's really had a very methodical and inspirational uh, progress on many different fronts in his life, be that business, be that personal, be that uh, tennis-wise. And so I think, in my view, I don't know what you think from having read the book, but to me it felt like, yeah, there wasn't going to be a series of Titanic-like twists in the story, but there was enough there and also just that reservoir of goodwill that Roger has created around the world in so many different cultures, across languages and across culture, meant to me that there was a story that, that was worthy of really being explored. Oh, look, I mean, I think that it's propelled by incredible page-turning momentum. I picked it up when I was in the middle of another biography for another episode, and I just could not put it down. So I think it's fascinating that you can, in fact, tell a story without um, the scandals that are often the fuel in other biographies. And I think that, you know, you've accomplished that to a, a remarkably successful degree. I want to go back, though, to the fact that you did use the word cinematic back there for a moment. And it struck me that there's a new kind of kid on the block in terms of the documentary biography. We're seeing great success on screen with documentaries about Naomi Osaka recently, the Michael Jordan series, The Last Dance, the wonderful documentary about Ayrton Senna. What do you think a sports biography as a book can do that a documentary can't? Because, of course, the great advantage that the documentary has is that we can see the match, we can see the finish line, we can see all of that exertion, we can see the moments of glory and the absolute, you know, calamity of defeat. I think the way the documentary is, has now evolved with, with these multiple episodes, like The Last Dance, the Jordan documentary you refer to, you know, there really are a lot of similarities to a book in that sense. You're able to really tell a, a very nuanced and lengthy story and explore a lot of different tangents in that sort of a format. 
What I don't think you can do entirely, though, is that sort of literary structure where you can tie things together in a very descriptive way. You can show it in a documentary. But, for example, one, I think one of the strengths of this book and one of the things I enjoyed the most about writing it was being able to really dig into the stories of the people who meant the most to Roger. And you could do that in a documentary form, I suppose, by asking questions of people about these people or having them answer some directly. But to describe their whole biography, but descriptive narrative uh, in written form, I think is a much more powerful medium than just doing it in a documentary form that way. But you're right, the action. And I had to be very careful with that because this book, you know, Roger's played well over a thousand matches in his career, won 20 Grand Slam singles tournaments and over a hundred tournaments on the tour in total. So picking the elements when you wanted to describe the action, which can be tough in tennis because it's a repetitive sport. That was a very uh, careful process for me to pick out which matches. I had a list of all the matches I wanted to talk about on the side of my desk as I was writing. And I kept crossing off the ones I wasn't going to be able to get to and trying to just to get to the best of them. So I think that's one of the bigger challenges in, in the written form with an action sport like tennis and also in a sport where you've got, you know, the patterns repeat, Caroline, they repeat. You've got the, the Nadal and Federer rallies in a match are often very similar over the course of four hours. So you had to really be careful and pick. But I think it helped me because I've written so many stories about tennis matches in my career that I kind of knew what felt fresh to me. For me, the most fascinating stuff of all is the motivational stuff, the stuff behind the scenes that we don't normally see or get access to, particularly the sports psychology, things like the strengthening of hand-eye coordination through bringing in jugglers to teach Roger how to juggle with different colored balls and different sequences. And then there was something that you wrote about, about how to work with um a sports person's stronger eye. Can you just talk a little bit about some of those techniques? And do these apply now in your experience across all sports? Is everyone rolling this stuff out? Well, you know, I think it's not clear how much Roger did in the eye training. Paul Dorochenko, who was one of his early fitness trainers with the Swiss Federation, was very interested in that and interested in sort of how you track the ball and in terms of being able to look at uh, – some people are left eye dominant. Some people are right eye dominant. So it's a matter of which eye tracks the ball when you're positioning yourself for a tennis shot allows you to kind of have an advantage in sort of perceiving and, and processing the shot to come. And so I think Roger is, if I remember, left eye dominant and he's a right hander. So when he's sort of turning to hit a forehand, he's picking up the ball on his forehand side quite early and tracking it in, in Paul Dorochenko's estimation. So it helped him make his forehand his strongest shot. Stan Wawrinka, another Swiss player, is a right-hander, but he's right-eye dominant. So when he's turning his shoulder for a backhand, he's picking up the backhand earlier with his right eye and tracking it in. So they get really to a level of micro detail with these athletes now through biomechanics, through mental training, and through eye training, if you will. A lot of athletes do do eye training now with computer programs as well, where they'll look at a, a screen and they'll be tapping and trying to perceive things with extra speed to try to improve their ability to, uh, to process information. But I do think there's a natural element with Roger, and people talk about this in the book. It's really interesting to think about. It's the processing speed that they have innately. And some of these great athletes, people like Jordan, people like uh, Lionel Messi, the great Argentine soccer player, they seem to have more time when you watch them play their sport. I'm sure the same thing exists in Aussie rules or things like that in, in Australia. People that are able to, you know, Sam Kerr comes to mind in soccer. Um, she's somebody who really is able to process things, it seems, at a different pace than other people. And so she appears to have time, time to put 
I think I called it in the book, kind of a last coat of paint on your shot, if you will, or a last <laughs> coat of paint on what you're doing. And I think Roger, the beauty of Roger Federer is that it appears that he's not rushed and he has time to sort of craft his shot, make his decision. And if you're watching on television, that seems a little bit less amazing than if you're watching in person, because once you're watching tennis in person, I don't know how much you've watched Caroline, but it's a game very, very percussive, very impactful and incredibly fast now. There just isn't a whole lot of time. But Rogers seemed, with a few exceptions, to be able to just complete the shot, keep his eyes on the ball like a golfer after his shot leaves the tee. And this Mark Rosset and other people who've been around him, they attribute this to sort of a natural processing speed, ability to perceive the whole court, the whole playing field, if you will, at a higher, faster pace than the average person or the average professional player. And there's a natural grace, a dancer's grace that's involved as well. I mean, some players might have that, but don't have that sort of ability Roger has to absorb the shock of his movements with, with grace and like a dancer, if you will. And he just, the way he finishes is it's all, it's all his body positions. The photographers who shoot tennis still talk about it's hard to take a awkward picture of him because he always seems to be in a, in a poised and balanced position. So some of that is natural and some of it is very much nurture in the sense that he is somebody who has worked very, very hard with his physical trainer fitness trainer Pierre Paganini over the years on these things you mentioned, sort of these creative exercises to try to keep it fresh, but also to find ways and everything that they do to apply it to tennis directly. You're not seeing them going out for five-mile runs in the woods anymore or lifting a lot of heavy weights. Everything that Pierre tried to do with Roger uh, was really directly related to tennis, which is very much an explosive sport, but it's an endurance explosive sport. You have to be explosive in these 5, 10, 15, 20 seconds bursts, but over often a five-hour period. So it's it's an interesting way to train. And Pierre was very, very clear from the start that he wanted with Roger to train specifically for tennis motions, which is often three or four or five steps. And then you stop, you explode, you do it again. You're not, you're not doing a 20-meter sprint too often in tennis. It's more real quick steps and, and hit. And now I, I think that's much more common on the tour. And I think it's common in a lot of sports. People are very specific. But I think when Pierre started 25 years ago with Roger, that was not the case. It was more uncommon, and he broke a lot of ground there. mentioned some of the coaches that you write about and he's had you know a, a variety of people that he's worked with over time and we've talked about um, the fitness trainer Dorichenko who was as you say interested in all the techniques around laterality there are a couple of Svengali figures in the book and one that interested me was Christian Markley um, and and the techniques that he used it seems I think you say that Federer was not that keen to discuss what it was that they did together yeah, that was a very, I think, sensitive and and pivotal time in Roger's life. He was still a teenager. The decision was made, I think, with Peter Carter to seek some outside help. I think his parents were on board with that idea as well. And I think they were trying to find somebody who could relate to young Roger. And Roger, as some of your listeners may remember, was a very talented soccer player as well when he was young, much like Rafa Nadal was, and could easily have been a professional player in the Swiss First division, I'm sure if he'd stuck with it, with his speed and agility. But he gravitated to tennis. And they found, at the time, they were looking for somebody who could just be a sounding board for Roger. And there was, at the time, a young PhD student 
in Switzerland named Christian Marcoli, who had been a first division player with FC Basel, which is Roger's favorite soccer team, the one he grew up watching play. And he was, I think, in his early 20s at the time or mid-20s, and he had just converted from being a professional to the to being a psychologist over time. And I think Peter Carter and Roger both read an article about about Christian, I believe, in a Swiss newspaper and realized, hmm, this could be a good connection. This is somebody who has uh, who could relate to Roger and somebody Roger could relate to in the sense that you know, Roger loves sport, loves soccer. And this is an athlete who had lost his career pretty early from injury, and I, but it has had a pretty close and recent connection to elite sport. And so Marcoli hasn't talked much in recent years at all. I communicate with him quite a bit, and he agreed to talk to me. But he and Roger have agreed long ago not to talk about the particulars of what they did. And I think Christian's tried to s- stick with that over the years. He has done a lot of writing with his other clients. He's coached uh, Swiss national team goalkeepers and Olympic gold medalists in skiing from Switzerland, and they've written books together, things like that. But Roger's kept it all at arm's length, I think because he really felt like that was a kind of his private garden at that time, and he didn't want to uh, discuss his vulnerabilities or things that might have happened with Christian. But it's clear that his behavior and his performance started to come together at that time. And, uh, and Marcoli talks about his own, in broad brush terms, of what he approaches. And a lot of what he does is, allowing athletes to uh, learn how to control their gaze during matches, quickly where their eyes are. Because Rogers, obviously, when you read the book, you read how high energy he is and how when he was young, literally his coaches would try to talk to him when he was at practices when he was 14, 15 years old. And he just they couldn't get his, him to keep their, his eyes on them for very long. He was so, so much nervous energy, almost like an ADHD thing where he was just needing to burn off the energy, needing the ball and the racket in his hand, and, and he just didn't want to sit there and talk about it. He wanted to do it. So I think um, Marcoli talked about the importance of the gaze and the focus of where you put your eyes after a point and the point being played, how you use those 20 and 25 seconds, which is often where a tennis match can be won or lost. So I think he really helped Roger understand the rhythm of the match and how to use that downtime more effectively, and to avoid some of the distractions that were really preying on him until that time. Mm. One of the other things that I think is so fascinating is the paradox that you say that in his youth, he was regarded as being quite lazy, as well as being competitive. So that laziness, does that laziness come from having an innate facility where you're just not having to try as hard as someone else? Sure. And I think he's somebody who I, I think Roger was always willing to give all the energy in a match. I don't, I don't, there are times you, you see, you sort of see him because it's not going well. His coaches talked about him sort of not fighting in those matches because I think it was so disappointing to him that he wasn't able to play up to his expectations, but he wasn't known as a great practice player by any means. And I think he was somebody who, yeah, he w- it did come easily to him. He was able to do things in a day that would take other athletes two weeks to figure out or things that he could do in a couple of days that nobody could ever figure out. So I think that would, that facility was clear. And I think he, um, over time, that was one of the reasons why I think he's gravitated to people who are so creative with him and he's asked for that creativity. And the thing you talked about, the jugglers being brought into the Swiss Federation and all these sort of diversions being created, I think, in the guys are doing it for the team, but really to entertain Roger and keep him motivated, That's that reflects that. But I do feel like um, over time, as he created his own team and his own process and took ownership of it, he really became very effective at, he's not going to maybe work five, six hours like a Nadal or somebody else might work at the same intensity, but he used that time very well knowing himself and understanding the kind of things that he needed to keep himself fresh mentally and to ride that creative process. But yeah, I think 
there had there have been some times when Roger has had a hard time, and, and I think the transition from being the dominant guy in men's tennis until Nadal emerged, and his dominant period wasn't quite as long as we might recall. It was relatively short in some ways before Rafa really became a threat on, on clay and other surfaces. But I'm sure that Roger struggled more with that than he let on. It was it was hard to surrender that situation when you've always been figured as the chosen one and suddenly have to be able to accept that there are others who are chosen as well. So he he managed that with varying degrees of grace early on in his career. But I feel like overall, the whole arc of his career, having watched him in so many news conferences, so many public settings, so many different moments where he could have made a gaffe or he could have been more critical of his peers or he could have been more dismissive. The moments have been really rare, Caroline. You do quote his um, his trainer, Dorichenko, saying that the gentleman that we see is a manufactured product and the result of Nike marketing, but that really he's a fighter. So I'm interested in that. It is interesting. And I included that because I thought that was an interesting perspective. And I think I talk about it in the book as saying, you know, it's really a minority viewpoint in that sense. And Dorichenko was somebody who played a, a strong role in Roger's life for a pretty short period early on. So he had a unique window into Roger. I don't think he's been much in contact with Roger day to day later on in his career. But I think early on, that grit that people sort of don't tend to dismiss with Roger was clearly there. He had this huge competitive streak and he wouldn't have played as long as he had if he didn't have that. I think there is some of that gentlemanly, polished approach to winning and losing, which hasn't always been there, but has been there most of the time. I think that's learned behavior. In Roger's case, just as the Zen master mask that he wears in his matches is very much learned behavior. Nadal, as you see him, point by point, the intensity, the focus, just the I'm going to run through the wall, this point and the next one and the one after that, that's Rafa. Roger had to learn to handle all the things that were happening with him. And he had to change quite a bit, I think, to find his sweet spot. So it's an interesting comparison there. We've all fallen in love with Ted Lasso on our TV screens as this kind of bumbling, naive American who comes to Britain to coach a football team that's on a losing streak. Football is not his métier, so he's got a lot to learn, not only culturally, but from the point of view of the actual sport that he's been hired by. But the thing about him is he is such a nice guy. And I just wonder, is niceness important do you think, in a coach? I mean, you know, we think that coaches must be really tough and able to drive someone hard. But is the psychology of how effective a coach is now, has that shifted over the years in that kindness and a more sensitive approach is more valued than it used to be? I think so. I mean, I think it's like, you know, I'll tell you how high to jump and you'll jump that high. I mean, that's that approach is seems outdated now. And thing with tennis players you have to remember is that who's the employer and who's the employee i mean really in a lot of sports the coach is the boss but in, t- in pro tennis the player is the boss there's really no exception to that maybe back in the days of harry hopman when he was picking australian davis cup teams and everybody cared about that so much was the one who was the boss but really in the modern game the players have the keys to everything and so it's a very hard walk to walk in the sense that you are employed by this person your success Depends, however, on probably doing your job with some tension and friction. You need to be able to create change. You need to be able to be critical, constructively critical, but critical. And sometimes you need to really be a change agent in terms of uh, how you push these buttons. And that can be a ticket to a short <laughs> to unemployment if you do it, you know, with too much vigor and and uh, and and you're too strong about it. So it's a hard walk. In Roger's case, 
I look at the coaches that have worked with him over the years. They are a range of personalities. Um, Tony Roach was one of his early coaches on the pro circuit. Um, and he's, you know, a taciturn fellow. He's seen many things in his career. Worked with Yvonne Lendl was a bit prickly as well. And so Tony's one type. And then you have someone like Peter Lundgren, who coached him very early on when he won his first Wimbledon. And Lundgren's just a, you know, really affable, open, jokey guy who does great Bjorn Borg imitations and also has a good tennis mind, of course. But Tony Roach and Peter Lundgren, that's a pretty big contrast there in a very short period. They were kind of back to back there in a lot of ways. Or you look at Paul Anacone, Stefan Edberg later on. Paul Anacone is a very chatty, uh, extroverted person, very comfortable talking about emotion. Edberg was one of uh, Roger's idols, a great Swedish player, is also a bit more reserved and like that. So he's had a mix of people. But I do think they're people that almost to a to a man, I would say, Roger really respects them. And I think he expects, as he's become mature, people to speak to him critically. And he actually wants that. And he wants to get different viewpoints. Paul Anacone and Severin Luti, who's his old friend and who's become his, one of his key coaches in Roger's case later in his career, they used to sort of get together and go, okay, we've got to give Roger one message. We're going to get our message together. We're going to present this to Roger. This will be our message as the coaching team to him. And they realized after a while that Roger didn't really want that. Roger wanted Severin's point of view, and he wanted Paul Anacone's point of view, and he would decide. So and the process is interesting to see how these, how these great athletes take it. And some do want to be kowtowed to. I don't think Roger's in that category. It's interesting that you do point out, Christopher, that there are very few female coaches in the male game. Um, apart from Djokovic, very few have been coached by women, although some have been coached, you say, early and well by their mothers. Are we going to see more women coaches in the men's game? I hope so. I think it's important. I mean, I don't, I don't see why if women are able to get on the road and make the decision to travel, which tennis coaching really requires, that's, that's, the, down, that's the downside to it. If you coach uh, in the U.S. and an NFL team, yes, it's a brutal job and it's around the clock. But in terms of the traveling aspect of it, I mean, the season lasts four or five months. Tennis is global, 11 months of the year. And the year, the month that you're not basically on the road for the tour, you're probably training someplace to get ready for the next start of the tour. And that could be in an exotic location. So it really is a out-of-the-suitcase kind of job. So it's been difficult for, I think, traditional roles for women sometimes to be able to want to embrace that that travel, if they want to have families, you know, retired pros from the women's circuit who would be highly qualified to be great coaches, often have chosen to not make that move because they don't want to go back on the road. And frankly, there are a lot of you know top men's coaches as well who've sort of gotten tired of that too. But I think there's no reason I can see why a top women's player who becomes a coach or a woman who does her training and due diligence as a coach couldn't coach a top men's player. And mm. we saw Maresmo do a nice job with um, Maresmo, former number one in the women's game, coached Andy Murray. But until now, largely, as you say, the most significant impacts and stories have been very early on in the career where there's been a mother or a, another person in a coaching role. In the case of Djokovic, whom you mentioned, it was Yelena Gencic, who was a uh, Monica Seles' early coach and Goran Ivanovic's yeah. early coach, who was a tremendously inspirational person. I met her in Serbia, and she basically is the reason Novak Djokovic is Novak Djokovic. She was a pivotal figure in the early years for him. Well, for me, one of the bonuses of this biography is the Djokovic backstory, which I knew nothing about. I did not know how far down on his luck he was in terms of how much, well, how little money there was left in the family kitty 
that he had to win a particular game or really they couldn't afford to go any further. And I just wondered whether you think there's a very special rapport, obviously, between Federer and Nadal. And you explore that in quite a lot of detail. There's a sort of suggestion that Djokovic is, um, although he's part of this kind of triumvirate now that's got a sort of stranglehold on the Grand Slam, that there is a sense that Djokovic is sort of an outsider. And I felt that it was almost as if you were saying it was like a class thing. Hmm, that's interesting. I didn't really cross my mind, to be honest with you. That came through. That's interesting. I, I guess that that could be a a vein worth exploring for sure. I think more than them viewing him as from a different class, from my own experience, I think it's what animates Novak is that, that raging desire and need to make it based on the sacrifices that were made. And that's been the interesting contrast in those three in particular, you know, Rafa and Roger, the more I research this book and I've been covered them for 20 years, but the more I research it, the more I re- realize how many parallels there were between them in terms of their upbringing, just their tastes, their connections, everything else. There's so many things that they share, and they come from comfortable backgrounds. Rafa comes from a great athletic family. His uncle was a top, top Spanish soccer player, so he was exposed to that world early on. Roger was not. But they had these very similar sort of family core backgrounds, and you know, they didn't have lots of money, but they, and the Nadals were an affluent family, but not super rich or anything. But they were, they were comfortable, so that it was really a, a quest that was – came from that sort of a middle-class platform. And Novak's a whole different situation. It's just uh, his family in better times might have been in a, in a better situation, but the the war in, in the former Yugoslavia changed all that, and they really had to had to scrape and scrap. And, and he, he felt he was carrying the hopes of his family and their investment in him throughout his life, and that's, that's really what's animated him. So I think they sensed that difference probably in his way of approaching them, the matches, the tour. But Novak... You know, has his detractors for sure, but one on one, he's a fascinating character. I mean, he can he can talk your ear off. He really can, and does. And his answers are always <laughs> many paragraphs and very in depth. He's always thinking and questing. I just feel from having followed them that Roger and Rafa have a more natural connection because of all their parallel ground. And Novak is an outsider in the sense that there's just it's more he's more of a coworker. And he and Nadal were a little closer earlier in their careers. They shared a a publicist and had some connections that were more deep. But I always feel with them that a little bit of arm's length going on there. Mm. Now, Chris, Roger's knee problems mean that he's out of action for a while. In fact, perhaps forever. Do you think he's ready for the fact that the end of his tennis career may be sooner than he anticipated and not in the manner of his choosing? You know, I think it's, it's, it's tough because I feel like he's in, he invested so much in this most recent comeback. Uh, obviously, the pandemic kept everybody from playing tennis for several months, and he was away from the tour during that period, recovering from his second and third knee surgeries. But he put a tremendous amount into that. And when he lasted that for his first knee surgery in 2016, when he took six months off at the end of that year and returned in Australia, actually, at the Hoffman Cup in Australian Open, it was like a dream. He played better than he ever had. He had, a, I think, this feeling he had nothing left to lose, and he was able to play freely and he won the Australian Open, one of his greatest victories, beating Nadal in five sets in the final and went on to dominate the circuit for a while there and got back to number one the following year. So I think he felt that wasn't that long ago. And when he had his next break, he had a long time to get ready and come back. He put a lot of effort into that. I think he felt he'd be able to come back in similar fashion and really uh, 
hit the ground running again. And it just didn't work out that way for a variety of reasons. I think the knee was never quite right, perhaps, as part of it, or he never felt the same kind of confidence in it. And also the game has has evolved and moved on. Um, and I think that's this younger generation. I mean, it's, it's remarkable Roger's been as competitive as he has for that long at the ages that he's been at. And he's been able to preserve his speed and his reflexes to that degree. But these young guys are good. I mean, they have yet to prove themselves like the big three of Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer. But these people like Stefano Tsitsipas and Daniel Medvedev and Alexander Zverev mm. and uh, players of that ilk, they're, they're very talented. And so inevitably it gets harder and harder. And I think for Roger, this has to be very demoralizing to have come back all that effort and then have to go back off the circuit again for a fourth surgery, which sounds a bit more complicated than the others. And I, I just don't know that he's going to have get the kind of satisfaction he wants from this process. And, and I think that's the risk you take from pushing so long and so far into your timeline. And I think we could all agree that as tennis spectators and people who follow the game, it's, I think he's made a lot of good decisions about continuing to persevere and he's proven his uh, ability to, uh, to play quality tennis at very advanced ages, much like Ken Rosewall did or Pancha Gonzalez back in the day or Martina Navratilova who also did it, but Roger has done it, in, I think, in a more competitive physical era, so to his credit. But I, I don't see him being able to, to come back from this and, and be competitive consistently at the highest level again. I'm not a tennis tragic or Federer fan, but I found this a genuinely satisfying read. Christopher Clary has an easy, engaging style, plenty of insight into his subject, and doesn't get bogged down in match analysis and technicalities. Instead, he provides access to areas of the player's off-court life which are fascinating in terms of his relationships with rivals, fans, coaches and sponsors. I've more respect and admiration for Federer now that I can see the fuller picture. Life Sentences is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Jennifer Macy. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Music is written and performed by Amanda Brown from her album Slow Chocolate, published and licensed by Lily Pilly IP. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. Life Sentences.